0: Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Justin Landon. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And this is Katerina Bourdais. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With...
1: 20 minutes with is a way to learn from people who are just as crazy and passionate as you to
0: figure out how they excelled at their craft so you can improve your own. Indeed, well said, well said. And dear friends, please join me in welcoming my co-host for this episode, Katarina Bordet, all the way from Vienna, Austria. Ma'am, thank you so much. I am delighted to have you in the, in the virtual co-pilot's chair with me today.
1: I'm excited to have finally made it on the show since I failed as a, a workshop.
0: <laughs> no, 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 not failed. That was just one of the many vagaries of existence. There is no failure here on the roundtable, just <laughs> an opportunity to try, try again. So, but regardless, I'm glad you're here. And and Katerina, sit back for just a moment. I want you to relax. What 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 is What is the drink of choice there in Vienna, Austria, if you're going to be relaxing for a bit? Coffee. 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 <laughs> all the, the coffee, really. Well, yeah. All right. Well, well then then pour yourself a a cup of the good stuff. And let me let me introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Yeah,
1: yes,
0: please. Oh, excellent. Uh friends, there's an old saying attributed to uh, journalist and cartoonist Alan Saunders that goes, Life is what happens when you're making other plans. Now, I've given intros for people who knew what they wanted to be back when they were still learning to tie their shoes, who have spent their lives in a single minded pursuit of their goals. And their achievements, often in the face of great adversity, become an inspiration, almost a mythology. Now, these are exceptional people. And I use that word very specifically exceptional, as in the exception to the rule most of us and by us I am definitely including myself didn't have a plan we we go through life we have hobbies pick up the odd skill here and there get a job fall in love get our hearts broken rinse and repeat but like velcro being dragged across a bad Christmas sweater stuff sticks to us as we go through our lives usually the stuff that means the most to us we acquire a kind of weight and substance in those specific areas. The gravitational flow of our life shifts and opportunities present themselves. If you're paying attention you seize those opportunities. And that's when amazing things can happen. And the impact and wonder of those things that we achieve are not in the least bit diminished by the fact that they weren't part of some master plan. Now, I'm pretty sure as little as six years ago, if you had told our guest host, he was going to be an esteemed and highly respected book reviewer, that he'd publish a collection of the best internet reviews and commentary, and that he'd be hosting a podcast for one of the powerhouses of genre fiction, he'd probably suggest you check into rehab. But that's what happened. It didn't happen by accident, and it sure as hell wasn't luck. It's what happens when, as Joseph Campbell put it, you follow your bliss. Now, back in the mid-1990s, when our guest host was a chubby 12-year-old, bliss was the farthest thing from his mind. He was going through what we all went through, the most awkward, uncomfortable stage of human existence. Let's face it, puberty sucks. And then, in January 1994, something happened that rocked his world. No, really, I mean it. It was an earthquake. He was living just outside of L.A., and a huge earthquake rocked the region that morning. That little dude was in bed when it happened. He just bolted from his home and into the backyard. Now, point of reference, that's the last thing you should do in an earthquake, but we can cut the kids some slack. So there he is. He's in his PJs, and all he can do is wait for the inevitable aftershock and for the grown-ups to get their act together. Now, that would have been really kind of boring, but he had grabbed one thing in his panicked flight from his bedroom a copy of Terry Brooks' Sword of Shannara. So, he sat down and started reading, and by the afternoon, he was hooked. Now, let me inject an editorial side note here. We've heard a lot of people on the show cite Tolkien as their gateway drug into genre fiction. Now, given the amount of flack that Terry Brooks has taken for the Sword of Shannara being blatantly derivative of the Lord of the Rings... I'm going to say our guest host can make the same claim. So, now he's a 12-year-old fantasy and sci-fi nerd. As most of us can attest, his circumstances have not improved. And his likelihood of getting a date ever have dropped dramatically. But that's okay. In addition to speculative fiction, something else has caught in his imagination. Politics. He's intrigued by the way nations work and the way governing bodies administrate whole states and countries. And a few years later, he applies and gets accepted to the political science program at the University of California, Santa Barbara. But before he goes, he packs up all his sci-fi and fantasy books, all those marvelous tales by Terry Brooks, Piers Anthony, David Eddings, and Raymond Feist. He shoves them into the garage he turns his back on genre fiction. I mean, that, that's kid stuff, right? He's going to college. It's time to be a grown-up. Now, this would be the stage in the Campbellian hero cycle titled Denial of the Call to Adventure. Now, through his college years, he starts working his way through Time Magazine's Top 100 Novel List. And he makes good headway. Make no mistake, our guest host is a voracious reader. But even now... Tucked under the bed and safely out of sight from respectable eyes, there are still copies of The Wheel of Time and The Song of Ice and Fire. But he gets in shape. He graduates and begins his life moving through the vast political machine of government. And he starts getting into historical fiction, which, as we all know, is fantasy for people who don't want to get caught reading fantasy. Dude so wants to read fantasy, but he just can't bring himself to bear the stigma. Then, in his late 20s, he reads Acacia by David Anthony Durham. And it was an accident. Durham writes historical novels. And and like a junkie trying to stay clean, he thought Acacia was going to be a safe book. The cover just had a tree on it. There was no warning label. So he mainlined a brilliant fantasy novel by mistake. And that's it. He was off the wagon. Joe Amber Crabby, China Mieville, the list goes on and on. And keep in mind, he's reading 25 to 30 novels a year. So he's racking up the literary consumption points. Then, in 2010, he blows his knee out. And I mean bad. He is laid up for a long time, the end result being he goes from reading 30 books a year to over 100. Now, like all good bookish types, he's plugged into Goodreads.com, and he scores a copy of The Quantum Thief in a contest. Always burdened by a strong sense of justice and balance, our guest host feels it's his responsibility to at least write a review for the book he got for free. And he does. He does. And it's kind of nice. The same thing happens with a copy of Leviathan's Wake. And he's really kind of digging it. And there are people digging his review style. So, you know, what the hell? He decides to set up a blog, post a few reviews so his online friends can see him. And thus, in 2011, Staffer's Book Review was born. And by the time he would close it down in two thousand fourteen, just three short years later, it would have thousands of subscribers. In two thousand thirteen, he would hook up with Jared Shuren of the iconic Porno Kitch blog, and together they would edit and publish the first ever anthology collecting the best nonfiction work online. And in 2014, he'd be tapped to host Tor.com's podcast, Rocket Talk. And dear friends, if you have not tuned in to Rocket Talk, you must make this scene as he converses with all the people you know from speculative fiction and the people you don't know but really, really should. He had no master plan. He just lived his life. The distinction is when opportunities presented themselves, He seized them, not out of ambition or a desire for fame, but because they were things he loved to do. And there can be no greater endorsement for someone's life. He's a Governor Affairs Executive for a major trade association. He's competed professionally as a weightlifter. His favorite comfort food is a protein bar. And he's been quoted as saying on Twitter, all the guys riding T-Rexes have small penises. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the Roundtable, Justin Landon. Justin, we have been circling this opportunity to have you on the show for years now, I think it's safe to say. And I cannot tell you how delighted I am that we finally made this happen, dude. Thank you so much for making the time.
2: Uh, thanks for having me, Dave. You make, you make my, uh, my twisty journey through life sound a hell of a lot more interesting <laughs> than I think it actually was. Well, I but, think that's uh, true of everybody,
0: appreciate- though. Everybody feels that way about their life. It requires somebody to turn it into an origin story to suddenly make it seem, whoa, crap. That's fucking awesome.
2: Yeah, I will tell you, though, that uh, I know I've listened to your show before. I've heard you do this research on people before. And it's interesting to experience it firsthand because I actually can point to the sources where you found all the things that you did find. I I know exactly where they were pulled from in my head, which is very interesting.
0: Look, before we dive into this, before I start the timer, I have one question that I don't want to count as part of our 20 minutes. J. Diddy Esquire. This is your handle on Twitter. This is your handle on Reddit. Uh, uh this is this is your name, your presence on Tay Interwebs. Where does that come from?
2: That's a that's a good question, Dave. Nobody's ever asked me that before. And all. Really? But it begins it begins with a previous name. And so my previous name was D-M-N-V-R-Y-C-E, which to anybody who has read C S Friedman. The Black Sun Rising trilogy <laughs> will know <laughs> that Damien Bryce is one of the primary characters, and so that was my name when I was that chubby 12-year-old on the internet. And ah, that was my moniker for a decade. Okay. So through Field of Time role-playing forums, through all of these different places, and I put it away when I went to college. And so um, I didn't really have uh, – I just kind of went by Justin – uh landing on the internet when I Cause was that's what grown ups do, right? That's right. We put our name behind what we say. But then that's as I right. got older I needed a, I needed a new handle and so I was I was into hip hop and uh I like to make fun of people. So making fun <laughs> of Puff Daddy I went with, <laughs> who goes by P. Diddy. I went with J Diddy. And then the Esquire comes from uh you'll remember the great film, uh Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where he introduces himself as Ted S. Theodore Logan and Bill S. Preston Esquire. Uh, he was clearly not an attorney, but, <laughs> but still used the Esquire appellation. Uh, I also am not an attorney, despite uh, working in a field uh, littered with them. I was going to say fraught uh, with attorneys. But uh, but I just enjoy the uh, Esquire moniker as a uh, sort of a laugh gag.
0: It does lend an air of dignity and esteem to the whole Jay Diddy thing, so...
2: Okay, it's, it's a great juxtaposition. I think.
0: I think so too. It's a contrast, which every good author, writer, and and blogger will will appreciate and respect. Awesome. So, and just I'm uh, just going to ask another quick question, Katerina, do you are you Katerina Bordet Esquire?
1: Um, no, no. Uh, there there is a, a Latin a Latin title to my name, uh, coming with law school and a law degree, but it's not Esquire in Austria.
0: What is it in Austria?
1: Well, it's a uh, Magistra. It's I don't know. Anyway, it's um just a stage between well, just being a lawyer. I can still do my J D, the doctor Uris, which I'm sometimes writing on, but yeah, it's it's not actually Esquire. But if you go abroad as an attorney you sometimes add it even if it's not the same title.
0: Personally, I would love to have Dave Robison Megestra as, as as my appellation. That's badass.
1: Well, you would have Magister, which is the male version, but Megistan. yes. <laughs> okay, yes. <that'd> be, <laughs>
0: that might, <laughs> might confuse things. All right. All right. Enough shenanigans. Let's get into this. I want to get into my 20 minutes with Justin Lannan. We'll set the clock, and I get a good sense we're probably going to ignore it, but what the heck. All right. Justin, you have read—I think it's safe to say—thousands of books, and you have written reviews for hundreds of them. You have you have consumed a, a, a vast sum of genre fiction, and clearly, you love it. Uh, uh, not just the reviewing of it, but the stories themselves. You have very definite opinions, and you articulate them beautifully. So, so. I can only assume during the course of this long consumption, this long assessment of, of genre fiction that you've got some conception, some idea of, of what, what, what the ideal genre fiction story is. <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot and I, and I'm curious, what do you have a conception of that? And, and what does that look like? How,
2: how did you get to that? And what is it? Well, so you, you, preface that question in an interesting way. You say, what is the ideal genre story? And I think that's a little harder harder to define, only because I think genre is an artificial construct. And so the question, I think it becomes, what makes a great story? And there are lots of answers to that question. But I think when we try to talk about, we always have this notion that we look at each other and we read books that are subjectively good and books that are objectively good. And you know, when something is objectively good, we look at, we say, oh, the writing is beautiful. It's beautifully constructed. It is well put together. And that's easy So us to identify that it is good. But then we'll read a book that we know is bad, right? Like uh, I'll just use Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Any writer will, re- will read that book or any well-read reader will read it and say, this is not a well-written book. And yet, I loved it, right? Mm-hmm. Thousands and millions of readers loved that book. The Wheel of Time drives me up the fucking wall <laughs> for all those things that it does wrong, and yet it does some things really great. And I will tell you what that is in just a minute, but I want to use the best example of this of all time, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, okay? All right. Incredibly controversial book. It is horribly written. And Ayn Rand is not a novelist. She is a philosopher and a uh, a nonfiction writer who dabbled in fiction. And most of her fiction works, which I've read all of them, are quite badly put together. And yet, you read Atlas Shrugged and you can't stop reading, and I challenge anybody to answer the question, why? And it's the same reason we can't stop reading Da Vinci Code. It's the same reason we can't stop reading Wheel of Time. And it's because she asks a question in the beginning of the book that I must have answers to. And in, and in her book, it's very simple. It's who is John Galt, right? It's, it's silly how simple it is, but you spend 1200 pages wanting to find out. Who the hell is John Galt?
0: Well, but that that question in that book becomes much larger than just the identity of the individual.
2: Correct. But let's look at the Da Vinci Code, right? We, We are confronted with a conspiracy theory that reveals itself in the very beginning of the book, and you say, I must know what the conspiracy is. In the Wheel of Time, the Wheel of Time is not interesting if Randall Thor is, in fact, the Dragon Reborn. The question that we demand to know Is he? Is he really the Dragon Reborn? Or is it Matt? Or is it Perrin? Or is it is it someone else? Is there even a Dragon Reborn? These questions that we feel compelled to answer. All the best books, all the best stories that we read compulsively ask a question in the beginning of the novel that cannot be answered without reading the book. And it's stunning how many books fail to do this. They fail to engage the reader on an emotional level about answering a question. And it's not the only way to write a book, but I believe it is a tried and true formula that regardless of how good of a writer you are, if you can hook a reader into wanting to know the answer to a question, the rest of the book can be utter shit, and I will read it compulsively, (laughs) and I will recommend it to my friends, and I will buy the next one. Well, how, how is the asking
0: of a question different from... Uh, uh, the posing of the quest. I'll use I'll use Lord of the Rings, and and we we have to get the ring to Mordor. Uh, uh, there's there's not a question asked. Is there? I guess the question could be, will they make it? But you know, the classic quest framework uh, doesn't necessarily pose a question. Does that hold up under that scrutiny?
2: Well, I would argue that the quest book, uh, Lord of the Rings, is a great example. I think the Lord of the Rings is a fairly boring book for that reason because I don't think it engages. That part of the brain, it's got a great, ah, okay. it, it, it. Lord of the Rings succeeds or fails based on the milieu almost entirely. It only works because we want to know more about the world. The plot is predictable and boring, and it doesn't engage the reader in that in that question answering that I think is so important to a compulsive reading experience. So I would argue and this is and this is perhaps the difference between a genre story and a non-genre story. A genre stories are able to fall back on the milieu. And they're able to fall back on setting and world and magical systems to uh, to make up for that inability to hook the reader with that question. Now, genre books that do both are the ones that absolutely crush, they, <laughs> that, that, that go to that next level because they're asking both. Uh, Song of Ice and Fire is a great example. Lush Milieu. But also ask the question, I mean, there are tons of questions. Tons you know, of questions, yeah. You know, is Jon Snow Ned Stark's son or is he not? You know, uh, who's a Targaryen? Who's not a Targaryen? But all of these questions that you have to have answers to and so you keep, keep reading, uh, in the middle you just reinforces it. So, uh, there are, you can have a book that doesn't do it, but I think the best ones do. What, uh, what
0: kind of questions do you think serve as the most compelling foundation for that kind of narrative?
2: I don't think you have to have anything in particular, although I do think conspiracies, uh, work very well, where you, where you, where the narrator doesn't know the answer to the question any more than the reader does, right? And where it can, where it can fail, where it can fail is when the narrator knows the answer to the question and the reader doesn't, because the author says, well gee, if I tell him the answer to the question, then the whole book doesn't work. And that's just bad writing.
0: We'll be back with more of our conversation with Justin Landon after this brief promotional break.
3: Hello, everyone. This is Alistair from Pseudopod and Skatepod and on occasion Podcastle and I've turned up in a lot of other places. I, I podcast a lot. And I'm here to tell you about the Parsec Awards. The Parsec Awards are an awards show. Stop Stop cringing this is a nice one. Every year, audio shows and projects in 16 different categories are nominated by fans of the community. Those nominations are then condensed down to a shortlist and judged by a panel of their peers. So you have podcasters, authors, narrators, people who make podcasts, people who work at every level of this medium, judging the best in this medium. And then the winners are presented at Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia, in the first weekend in September. The Parsecs were founded in 2005 by Tracy Hickman, Merle Lafferty, Michael Menningay, and, I'm reasonably certain, an early ancestor of Fox Mulder. The Parsec Awards recognise those whose work marked the pinnacle of this media form and provide countless hours of entertainment to their audiences. It would be really good if you could find out more about the awards and nominate your favourite podcasts at ParsecAwards.com. And believe me, this is a true story. Now. Let's get back to the conversation with
0: Justin Landon.
1: But That poses a question for me because you say, for you, a good book is what hooks you. Then a lot of people would put the mass market behind the well-written part. So there would be a lot of people who say, well, it's more important for a book to be well-written than to hook a lot of people. So your parameter for a good book is basically how many people it hooks, am I correct? Or if it's
2: like a mass market? Every every writer has a different goal, right? And I think you often hear the question posed to a writer, would you rather be a New York Times bestseller or win an award? And most will say both. (laughs) Because we want it all, of course. And, And very few will say they'd rather have an award. Most writers want to make a living. And so I think if your intent as a writer is to write the next great American novel or the next great novel. We always say the next great American novel because it's a silly phrase that we use in America. But uh, <laughs> Yes, yes, you do. Well, because, because we like to define what an American novel is, which is a stupid discussion. But if you want to write the next great novel, the truly great novel, when you, when you think about a literary achievement, a classic of, of, of whatever genre you're writing in, that's a different question, right? But if you want to write a book that millions of people want to read, then I would argue that it, that the good writing, it only has to be good enough. It doesn't have to be great. It only has to be good enough. Only good enough to communicate your ideas. And I think that, uh, that if it's good enough to communicate the idea, the, the hook becomes the absolute central key to selling the book to a publisher. And to getting a reader to read it and keep reading it and to get that reader to recommend it to a friend, because I got to be honest with you, I have almost never recommended a book to a friend based solely on quality of prose. Maybe when I was a pretentious college kid. But not <laughs> have you ever read a book that does both? Sure, absolutely. Uh, and I, you know, uh, just off the top of my head, because I have done no pre-thinking about this exactly, but you know, Robert Jackson Bennett, I think, is a great example of a writer that has been able to pull off both. And uh, in his most recent novel, A City of Stairs. I mean, Robert Jackson Bennett, I think, is is one of the finest actual uh physical writers. I don't mean as a physical specimen, but I mean the actual <laughs> the actual. I mean, he's nice looking, but actually the words that go on the page, right? Like he does really good words, and he's written a, a series of no, a couple of novels. He's written uh, The Troop. He's written American Elsewhere. He's written Mr. Shivers. He's won a Shirley Jackson Award. He's won an Edgar Award, which are horror and mystery awards. And, and his newest novel, A City of Stairs, is ostensibly an epic fantasy. But, uh, his, his initial question that he asked, I think, is, what the fuck are all these staircases that don't go anywhere? <laughs> and it's because of, of, of something that has happened to this city. And you want to know the answer to that question. You're like, why do we have a bunch of stairs that go, don't go anywhere? And, and that, that question is answered through the course of the novel. It's also, uh, objectively a beautifully written novel in the present tense, which is, which is always an interesting challenge. And, uh, it's a tremendous novel. So yeah, it can be done both ways. There are millions of, or hundreds of books that do it both ways, but I, we always try to answer that question of why does a shitty book objectively, a shitty book being read by millions of people? Why is the Da Vinci code being read by millions of people? And I think it's because it hooks a reader with a question and, and that demands to be answered.
0: Well, and that gives that gives a writer uh, uh, something to work towards, something to to focus on. Do I have am I posing a strong question at the onset of my story? Uh, uh, And is that question strong enough to sustain the reader through the short story, novella, novel, trilogy? What what the heck ever? Robert Jordan, Wheel of Time, dozen books, whatever. Uh, So, yeah. Awesome. That's, that's, that, that, that gives me a framework I can work with. That's an intriguing perception.
1: What I was wondering when I, when I read um, your critiques, what goal are you trying to achieve with them? I mean, in the writer who hopefully reads them. So what do you want? What message do you want to get across to the writer who sees your review? Good or bad, what do you want to invoke in him
2: that's a loaded question um because it, cause it makes because it makes some assumptions right um it makes some assumptions that when I write a review or a piece of critique uh that's for public consumption that I care what the author thinks, and i don't um at do you all.
0: have an agenda do you have do you have a goal or an objective
2: sort of um and I think it's the same objective that a writer has, an author has. And I think this is something that a lot of bloggers lose sight of. And I don't mean to throw feces at anybody, but I'm going to. Not by name, but just, um, you know, in general. A, a lot of bloggers have this idea that I, I write my reviews for, for the reader. So they can, it's a reading guide. So they'll know what to spend their hard earned dollars on. I don't care if I save anybody any money. For crying out loud, that's not what I'm here for. Uh, I don't care if the some people say, "Well, I write my reviews for the author to help them improve." Well, that's very egotistical. I don't think an author cares what a review says in terms of learning how to their craft. Um, not to say they can't learn something from it, but I don't think that should be the intent. I am a blogger for the same reason that that uh, Cameron Hurley is a writer. I want people to read me. I want to be entertaining. I want to offer something to my reader. Uh, that th- why would you choose to read my review over uh, Sarah Chorn's review or Aiden Moher's review? I would hope you would read my review because you're more entertained by it. Not that they're not entertaining as well, but like my goal is to be entertaining and to be engaging, and I want to build a readership uh, in the same way that an author does. Right? It's it's a it, that's why? It. Uh, because I find an immense satisfaction in writing.
0: But you could derive that satisfaction by writing and putting it into a bookshelf or into your desk drawer,
2: right? Uh, Perhaps. Oh, God. no, no, absolutely, not. absolutely <laughs> not. I have an ego just like everybody else. Um, <laughs> it, it, at the end of it, why does a writer do – I mean we have lots of writers. I'll use Courtney Schaefer as an example. Courtney Schaefer uh, has a very high-powered day job. She's an engineer. She graduated from uh, Caltech. She doesn't need income from writing. Uh she writes because she loves it, but she publishes for another reason. Uh I do not want to put words into Courtney's mouth, but I would guess it's because she wants people to read what she writes. And it's not about money. Uh I mean the money's nice, but it's about and let's be honest, it's about servicing the, the ego, the ego of wanting to see people read what you have to say. Uh, and maybe that's not a popular way to frame it, but I think it's an honest way to frame it. I write reviews, I write criticism, because I think what I have to say is valuable and important to the general discourse, and I want people to read it.
1: I totally, that- I totally get that. I can, I can personally relate to that very much. No one would read my contracts if I pl- publish them. Um, <laughs> so yes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do, I do, I do totally get that. So, okay, going away from my misconception, so you're, approach to what you want to achieve with the review blog is basically the same as a writer does. You want to entertain and think, but then going back to the point, okay, there might be writers who do read your blog. So let, then let's put it into the writer's point of view. What do you think a writer should take away from a review?
2: Uh also a good question with many layers. I think that uh, I so, – No, no, oh, good question. What's questions? your favorite
0: color? No, stop. I like <laughs> the first one.
2: <laughs> that's why it's a good question. It has many layers. And I, I will say I have – since I started my review blog, I don't know, three or four years ago, Dave probably knows better than I do the- uh, after his after his research. But when I started the blog, the intent was, was just to send things into the void. What What happened over the course of the blog is I actually developed – relationships. And that's ultimately why I closed the blog, right? Because I have become too close to many of the people about who I write. And so, uh, so I actually have some insight into how people react to my stuff and it's a fairly large gamut. I have some people that read it and get very angry and I have some people that read it and say, what a good point. I think I need to use that and, and, and self-reflect on it. And that others that read it and, and can say agree with me or disagree with me, and then it just, they just, but it just goes away. It just goes right through them. And, uh, I think all of those are appropriate responses to, to reading a review. I think that in a perfect world, a a writer would read what I have written and say, I haven't thought about that before, and maybe they can take something away from it. However, I think the best thing a writer can take away is to read it as a, as a singular response to what they've written. And I think that's important. I talked to Lev Grossman, a New York Times bestselling author of The Magician's Trilogy and the lead critic for the, uh, the Time Magazine's book review, and I had a chance to interview Lev. And we were discussing what makes a good piece of criticism or a good review. And he said he believed that a review or a criticism is simply put emoting in public. That the best review or the best piece of criticism is just somebody telling their audience how a book made them feel. And so if that's what a review and a piece of critique is trying to do, and I think that's something that I always try to do, then the writer should take it away as this is how my book has made somebody, not everybody, not even a group of people, but somebody feel. And I think there's value in that if a writer can look at it in the right way. That it is one response, it is one response that my review is, or my book has been able to engender from somebody, and good, bad, or, or, or whatever, having somebody react to my work is good. Even if it's the most excoriating piece of screed that has ever been written about them, they can still take pleasure in the fact that their book engendered emotion from somebody. And to the end of the day, the worst referendum a writer can ever hear is, eh,
0: <laughs> yeah, true that. <laughs> well, but but you have spoken on on speculate and on functional nerds and and other podcasts about the concept of the tastemakers. And those reviewers that literally engender buzz positive or negative uh, based on as you say their their personal assessment of the review of, of the book of the of the, the piece being addressed. And again, as a writer, you know, maybe a career-minded writer who's looking forward and going, I, I, I want, you know, I want to be on the New York Times bestseller list. I want to be uh, viral. I want to be that guy or that girl. Can can we can we do that? Can we can we look at at Justin Landon or or Sarah Chorn or Aiden Moore and say, eh, they didn't like it. I don't care or that doesn't bother me. I know it's still good, even though these tastemakers have said meh.
2: Well, so here's the other question, right? And now we're getting away from how should a writer respond to, I mean, we're taking things out of a vacuum, right? We're talking about how does yeah. the writer and the reviewer interact. And now we say, well, how does a, how does the writer and reviewer interaction change the landscape of a book's success or failure? And God, that is a Rubik's Cube. Yeah, that's true. Kind of, I mean, as I think, I don't know if it was on, it was on Speculate SF recently. I think Brian McClellan and Mike Cole uh, were interviewed and they, Said something, and, they, and I attribute it to them because I don't want to be the one to claim to have said it. They <laughs> said, <laughs> nobody knows what makes a book sell. And this is, I hear this all the time. It's probably the thing that makes me the most angry in pub- the publishing industry. Is that even people that work in publishing, they get paid thou- you know, tens of thousands of dollars every year to sell books. They, they, you hear this. We don't know what makes a book sell. And I, and I don't know that I have the answer either. But reviewers work like dominoes. Uh, you you get the one at the top of the pile and you push it over and it hits the next one and it hits the next one and it hits the next one and you get this series of dominoes being knocked down and along the way in this domino of reviewers, you'll see an author, you'll see a book buyer, you'll see uh, an agent, you'll see an editor, you'll see uh, fans and so it's this uh, series of dominoes that spreads out, right? And so how do you hit the, the right domino that makes that avalanche cascade? And that's the question. That is the one question that we can't figure out. Is who's the domino at the top of the pile for the right, for, for this book, right?
0: And dear God, I hope we never do. <laughs> I really, really hope they never mathematically nail down what that is. Cause that right there is, is, is the death of, of creative expression in my opinion.
2: Well, it could be, it could be. I once wrote a post about my, my theory about applying statistics to uh, fiction because, uh, you know, the sports turned on its, turn on its head when they applied statistics it. I used to hear these things that were like, uh, well, we do this because we've always done it that way. And if you bump the guy over to second base, he has a better chance of scoring a run. And math has proven that's patently false. <laughs> um, and so I, I have argued uh, with publishing that you need to release your data. And if your data is public, we will know what works and what doesn't. And I don't mean to apply that to writing directly, although I'd be interested to see if you could, but to marketing that if we knew where the money was spent. If we knew which reviewers were touched, if we could figure out where the money flows and where the connections are made and map it, we'd have a much better idea because I think this is the challenge. I get emails from publicists. I get emails from writers. I get emails from other bloggers. Um, and bloggers and I talk all the time. Sarah Chorn and I kept a spreadsheet of everything we were sent for six months. <laughs> and the overlap was weird. You know, We, we she got sent some stuff that I didn't get sent. I got sent some stuff that she didn't get sent. There's no and so we don't know. we don't know where that uh, influence point is. I don't think anybody does.
1: Are you not making assumptions here because just because the public doesn't know what makes a book say sell doesn't mean that the advertising departments of the publishers don't know and don't use statistics just because they won't release it to the public because they say look that's that's our you know our business secrets. Or trade secrets, really?
2: Absolutely. I hope they do. Uh, I hope they are using them. But I do know that I hear from people inside the industry who say we don't really know what works either. And I think oh. that's well, we're getting into a huge yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but I will just say that people that work in publishing, uh, at least in genre publishing, we don't. It's not like they're hiring typically MIT grads to run statistical models on. And neither was professional sports. Neither are many industries that would benefit greatly. From people that really understood the way that, uh, uh, statistics work and, and the way that math works and the way that modeling works. And so they've hired them in sports and it's made a huge difference. So I have just been advocating. And the reason they hired them was because the data was public enough that the work could be done for free. These people did the work because they were interested in it. And publishing that data, again, it's proprietary and so it isn't shared. And so we don't know where things are flowing, and so we can't do any of that work on the outside. So we're, we're left to sort of rely on you know, the assumption that publishing knows what they're doing on the inside. A bold assumption, perhaps. Right. All of that goes back to say, which the initial question was, how should a writer deal with the fact that a bad review can create a cascading effect within the community? And I would argue that a cascading effect of any kind is healthy and good. Uh, Mark Lawrence got a negative review once that that ripped him up one side and down the other. And it went on to create more conversation about his book than he would have gotten any other way. The same is true (laughs) of Michael J. Sullivan. And the same has been true of a lot of writers who have been publicly bludgeoned, but the resulting conversation around that bludgeoning raised them to a profile that perhaps they would not have had otherwise. So I will always say in, in the book world, any publicity is good. publicity, you know, one bad review Uh, or even 10 bad reviews is not the end of the day if it gets people talking about it.
0: and, And the takeaway from that is really nothing happens in a vacuum, nothing happens out of context. There is a much larger picture in play and regardless of who said it and how bad the review is, it's not an end point to anything other than that particular review. Your career, your life, your work exists far beyond and above all of that.
2: That's well I mean yeah I, I every author must believe that what they've sent into the world is is the best thing and and no review should change their outlook on on how they feel about their work, sure uh, it is one person's response about what they've read and uh, and even the greatest works out there have gotten the worst reviews so
0: justin the the clock is shaking its fist at me, but I want to ask one last quick question for you. Um, uh, as a reviewer, you have uh, honed a, a creative, critical eye towards stories and, and your great response and, and, and conclusions regarding what makes a good story. Example of that. Um, critical reading is a skill I think every reader Can benefit from the ability to to not just read a book for its enjoyment and entertainment, but also to mine it for what's working and for other possibilities in their work. Can you just give us some quick insights into how you have evolved that critical eye in some way so that maybe our listeners could apply some of the same tactics and strategies in their own critical reading?
2: Hmm. I like that one. Um, let me talk my way into it. Um, sure. I will. I will point to something that I have observed in a particular writer, and it's a guy named by the name of Brent Weeks. And if you read a Brent Weeks novel, uh, and I would, the best one is uh, the second book in the Lightbringer trilogy, which is called The Blinding Knife. And in that book, if you read it, every chapter, and it gets back to what I said before about the question thing, but every chapter before it ends, ask a question that will be immediately answered on the first page of the next chapter. And that is one of those mechanisms that if you can, rec- once you recognize it, you can never stop seeing it. And once you see it, you will be so impressed by it because you finally understand the, what makes you not stop reading. It's the books that keep you up till two in the morning. You ever wonder why a book keeps you up till two in the morning? yes, because it's good, but I've read a lot of good books that don't do that. And it's because of this mechanism, this mechanism that asks a question at the end of a chapter and that must be answered in the next chapter. And how I sought that, how I spotted that the first time, I don't know. And how I noticed it the first time, because I mean, the best writing, you don't notice it, right? It's, it's just part of the experience and you don't quite realize it. But I think it came from just reading hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books that helps me to start to see mechanisms like this. And I think that's the answer. I think the thing I hear from writers most often is I write so much that I don't have time to read as much as I would like or as much as I used to. And I think, at least for writers who aren't publishing yet, that's a mistake. Um, you must make time to read. And I would recommend, too, to not just read within your genre. I think that's another mistake that writers make where they're constantly reading what they're writing. I think that gets you into a weird echo chamber. Um, you have to read some of what you're writing. Otherwise, you end up writing stuff that's derivative, and you don't even know it's derivative, which which is a problem, right? You, sure. I wrote this great story about these four realms filled with elves <laughs> and it, you know, If you've never read fantasy, you would think that's an original idea, and, and it's not. But um, you also need to read outside. You need to see story structures that aren't genre story structures, and you're starting to see more mashups. And so where that happens, where people are bringing story structures from outside into genre. And so I think you need to read widely. You need to make time to read. Everybody reads at a different speed, but if you're not reading a couple of dozen books a year as a writer, I don't know how you can possibly hope to really understand how these mechanisms work. You can't learn it in a book. You can't learn it just from a class or a workshop. You have to really get in there and learn by experience, and that's both writing and reading, but reading is a component of it. Definitely. Definitely. You know?
0: Well, and you can even argue that, you know, after you read a book to actually seek out and pursue the the, the critical reviews and, and assessments of the work you just read and see if your assessment and, and then the patterns that you recognized are picked up and supported. And if new ones are, are revealed by by that reviewer
2: or write uh, your own. And that's the other. I think I go yeah. a much more observant and critical reader because I forced myself to write about it after I finish them. Some some reviewers take notes as they read. I'm not one of those people. I just I, I keep it in my head. But uh, writing about something after you read it makes you look at it in a different way and it makes you read it in a different way, knowing that you're going to be writing about it at the end of it. And so even if a, even if a writer isn't going to publish their reviews because they don't want to shit where they eat, <laughs> uh, You can still do it and still go through the exercise of reading critically with a purpose instead of just, instead of just reading. It's like anything. I mean, writing with a purpose is the same way. Don't just sit down and throw words on a page. I mean, that's, you know, good to do sometimes, but if you sit down without a plan of some kind, usually you're going to end up nowhere.
0: That's that's excellent. I love that. I love the idea of, of sitting down and writing your own review of a book you just read, not with the intent, as you say, of publishing, but just learning. There's nothing like writing something down to, to organize your thoughts and really get you focused on the treatment, the thing that you're trying to articulate guys. I'm I'm, the, the, the clock is actually loaded up with a, a, a bazooka of some kind. And it's pointing it at me, threatening my life. Uh, we have gone way over our 20 minutes. Oh dear. What a shock. Uh, uh, Justin Landon, sir, this has been a delight and an inspiration. There's been some real good writerly goodness in here. I really appreciate you making the time, man.
2: Anytime, Dave. Anytime I get to talk about myself for longer than ten minutes, I'm <laughs> all in. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Ain't that true of all of us? Katerina, as as I observed, there there is some definite writerly bits of gold in there. What what are you taking away from this conversation with Justin Landon?
1: I think the the question mainly because it made me Realize even more strongly why I read a lot of things that I do read that are neither, you know, fiction. That why I read so much crime novels, actually. Um, but <laughs> but also that it makes me want to go back to to a couple of things I wrote, and it's certainly going to change the way I approach editing my stuff in the
0: future. Absolutely, yeah. That 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 really kind of crystallized for me as well. Um, but but honestly, that last bit about reviewing the books that you write, if, you, if you're serious about understanding the craft that has gone before and, and the works of those who have done it longer than you have, uh, uh, I, I can't imagine a better way to really refine that critical eye and be able to, even as you're reading something for enjoyment, be able to go, ooh, yes, this touched me in this very specific way, and I want to be able to touch my readers in the same way, I can use that strategy or that tactic in my own stories. Uh, uh, that just is a great way to fill your writer's toolbox. I think mean, that's awesome. So, friends, uh, this, I, I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did, as long as we went. Uh, I think it was definitely worth it. Now, now here's the awesomeness. Here's the fabulosity of what's going to happen next. You guys come back in seven days. We'll have Justin back, and we'll have Katarina back, and we will have a courageous guest writer sit down and put out a fabulous story idea. And then the four of us are going to dive in into a creative, frothing brainstorm that that is... <laughs> I, I'm looking into the future. Yes, yes, it's going to be freaking awesome. Uh, so so do make your way back here. Uh, and I know, I know that seven days away, that's a long time to make you wait. Katerina, what do you think our listeners should be doing between now and seven days from now?
1: Well, that's quite obvious. Make a big pot of coffee, <laughs> bake a cake, sit down and write.
0: I like that. Yes, one must accessorize one's writing, mustn't one? I think that's an excellent idea. Fabulous. And I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, uh, you find what you're looking for. So set your sights high. Look for the awesome, the wow, the oh, hell yeah. And I promise you, if you look for it, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. The music for the Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown: Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com/roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.